0: people, we ought to know what the modern world is, what the understanding is that people have of man and of the world about them, what therefore leading philosophy says, leading philosophers say, what leading scientists say, and leading theologians say. So that is one thing that we want to be concerned with these couple of weeks. Now, there are two ways of doing this. There is the Roman Catholic way and the Protestant way. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic way has also been taken over by a great many Protestants. So we have a difference within the Protestants' view, too. So the first thing I want to try to in- intimate to you is, much of this is, of course, very familiar to you, that if we believe the Bible to be the infallible and errant word of God, then we take our information simply from it as to who God is, who man is, what the world is and uh, what we are to do in this world. Now, we say to begin with, as Christians, and I think we may say as Reformed Christians, I seem to see a name there, Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Now, as Reformed Christians, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that the Reformed approach to things is not to start from the doctrine of predestination and deduce from it all kinds of individual doctrines as a logical system of truth. But where we differ, when we differ, to the extent that we differ, I think we ought to differ in that we are more faithful to what the Bible teaches. That, to me, is the significance of the Reformed faith, greater truthfulness, fuller truthfulness to what Scripture teaches. Well, what does Scripture teach? Well, it teaches us, simply, that God existed from all eternity as the Triune God. Now, this is all the resemblance, Albert and spent very little time on it. you have seen this before. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Triune God, we can speak of it as, therefore, as self-existent, self-existent, and self-authenticating. God has made the world. Therefore, the world, this world, is dependent on God, God is not dependent on it. A one-way dependence. Now, that's simple. Very well. It's the simplicity of things that count. They are basic. We are not different from others in holding to some fancy derivative doctrine, but in that we are more faithful to the basic simplicities of the truth. Well, that means that we believe, therefore, in the Trinity with respect to the doctrine of God. We believe in the world as created. We see that, that man in the world is made in the image of God, the image bearer of God, therefore that he is like God, because he is the image bearer of God, and he is unlike God, because he is a creature, and therefore cannot be identical with God, he cannot participate in the being of God, he cannot overlap in his knowledge, the knowledge of God. Now that we can say, man is analogical, therefore he is like and unlike a creature and like, but he's also a creature, and therefore unlike, therefore he knows God, he cannot help but know God. He cannot help but know God. You remember that one outstanding thing, the expression that Paul uses, don't discuss that one. In Romans, knowing God, they have not kept him in remembrance people say, how do you know God? How do you prove God's existence? You don't prove God's existence. Every proof that's ever been given for God's existence is a disproof of God's existence, except that it doesn't prove anything, and so it isn't even a disproof. Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, The point being, if you don't start with God, you'll never get to God. You see, there's only two ways of approaching things. You either begin with God, suppose you Taking a family situation, little children of their family, little brothers and sisters don't say to one another, I wonder whether we got parents. you think we got a dad or a mother? <laughs> and then they see a man around about the house and they say, Are you my daddy? No, they don't do that way. They get taught right from the beginning. Uh, the first awareness of themselves uh, can inclin I mean involved awareness in of their parents and parents. You're inherently derivative and man knows that that's built into them. Calvin speaks of this as infection in the I think that's not an elegant expression in a way, but it certainly is a striking one. Infixed in your bowel. You can't walk around without your bowels. So neither can any man living on earth walk around without awareness of the fact that he knows God and that he is a creature of God and that he ought to behave as such. And there is your unconditional proof, your point of contact for the gospel, isn't it? You don't have to worry about having no point of contact with unbelievers. They can't get away from God, and therefore they can't get away from you. When Lazarus was in the tomb, well, he was dead. And people who don't like the informed faith and in particularly don't like the doctrine of total depravity, so obviously it's plainly taught in scripture that man is dead in trespasses and sins, that he is at enmity against God. The natural man cannot know the things of the God of God. They are spirit discerned by the Holy Spirit. Well, they don't like this doctrine because they say then you're cutting man loose from God, and all connection is broken. You've got to have a point of contact with other people who have a different point of view, and certainly we have lots in common with them. Well, and of course, they're the ones that don't have anything in common, because, and I'll get to that later on, if you separate yourself from God, then you're outside of the universe. As you try to be, you can't get outside of the universe. Stop, world, I'd like to get off. Well, look at you, whether I like you, whether I want to get back home. Well, you don't talk that way unless you're out of your mind. Uh, (laughs) The point being that anybody that is in his right mind knows that he is a creature of God, and therefore you never need to worry about having a point of contact for the gospel with uh, because that's just the, where the point of contact is. In one of Dickens' novels, there is a character that has committed murder, and then he's in a tap room or saloon in those days, and uh, he's drinking, of course, and he's got old, old, dirty old hat on, and uh, comes a man with a cleaner. He says, oh, oh. I've got a new, new type of cleaner here, you know. Renews it. Well, what is it? for am to use it. And it'll take anything out. Look here. Give me your hat. You got blood in that hat. I'll take it out. show you how it goes. Well, he doesn't like to give that hat, you see, because he knows that when this man takes that blood and that blood is tested. I'm a little this here because he didn't have that equipment then to test blood. But suppose that somebody said, look, I can test that blood. Well, if he did, it would prove that he was the murderer. Well, so no man wants to meet God after he's left God, after he's rebelled against God. Doesn't want to meet God. Now, uh, I was invited for dinner last night by three of these gentlemen, and the most attractive thing that I saw in their home was these firebells, You know, just made you ache to get up and lift up. <laughs> but since I'm too old and feeble for that, I might have just taken a hatchet and chopped up the china closet, <laughs> and, uh, taken out a few of the. Fun- for the long time, or if I were invited to Mr. and Mrs. Smith as I am for dinner tonight I suppose I came there tonight and I took Mrs. Smith a uh, uh, long collection of things and took them along you know just because they appear to me Well, now that's what man has done he took a hatchet and knocked up God's china closet in paradise and, and thought he would be invited back for dinner well I <laughs> Well, God sent him forth from paradise and said you're not doomed by this back of energy. There is separation, eternal separation between us unless I come down and forgive you and receive you again on the basis of atonement. Now, Karl Barth doesn't need that sort of atonement. He says there is no hell, only victory over hell. That's mystica, non-being, but not eternal destruction. Modern, modern theology by and large, knows nothing of the wrath of God and of eternal atonement, and of of eternal destruction from the faith of God. Well now, we have, as Christians, as believers in the gospel, we believe simply and directly, uh, uncritically, let's say uncritically, that doesn't mean naively, it doesn't mean that we're not familiar with biblical criticism philosophical analysis and with scientific methodology, but it means that when we are familiar with all of those, we still, because then we are really critical, and therefore not critical in that sense, we believe this, let us call it a system of truth, a system, not a system, a deductive system in which you take a major still of predestination, and go down this way next conclusion, next conclusion, lower and lower and lower and lower deductively. You don't. You simply read the Bible, see what one teaching is and the other, and how they supplement one another, how they modify one another in the sense that you mustn't start over here and say, well, now, whosoever will. I have Percy Crawford. Any yeah? of you remember Percy Crawford way back, who he was? Oh, you do, Mr. Fowler. Well... he was a junior in my class one day, in the early days of seminary, and of course he was very strongly whosoever will, but he didn't like the biblical teachings of a less sovereign grace. So he had to write a paper for me one time, and he he chose the subject in Calvin, and the the gospel or something to that effect, and so he wrote all the whosoever will passages out for me. There are quite a number of them I have have read them. predestination, no freedom, therefore hell is wrong. I said, person, you haven't even faced the problem. The problem is not that you take one series of teachings of Scripture and deduce from that certain philosophical consequences which you haven't any business doing, which is not the method of Scripture, as of Jesus. And then say the other side isn't fair and isn't true. He didn't dare to read Ephesians or any of the other main passages in which God has definitely said, have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then there was not Grand Rapids at the time a man named Reverend Herman Huxley who denied all teachings of common grace even, the general offering of the gospel. And he said, God has from all eternity chosen some to eternal life, some to eternal death. Therefore God cannot at any time, at any sense any matter that time any attitude of favor to the generality of mankind, the man he left. Well, don't see that that was also deceptivism. Now, both of them were wrong for the same reason. They were both strongly opposed to that. Person was whosoever will Christian. Now, a good many of our fundamentalist friends are that, and they don't quite dare to read everything that's in the Bible. And however, Herman Huxman didn't dare to read that part of the Bible, apparently. Don't you see? Well, we have to dare to read the whole Bible. And then we don't say the Bible contradicts itself. That's what Carbard says. He doesn't dare to read the Bible at all. I mean, what the Bible teaches us all about these things. But we say we don't understand exhaustively God is incomprehensible. That is, he's not fully comprehensible to us. Do we, creatures, expect that we finite with our finite minds, we are spatial, we are temporal. We talk about God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I hope all of you, whether you're Presbyterians or not, have memorized that good Presbyterian definition (laughs) of God. Oh, now, incomprehensibility idea is written into the heart of every major Reformed confession, isn't it? Why? Not because that's a special reformed doctrine, but that's a truly biblical Christian doctrine, which simply means the place of man as the creature who knows God, not just on some sense, and who can't help but know God, but who can never, now or in heaven, expect or should aim to know God exhaustively. The idea of exhaustive Penetration by the intellect of man is a pagan idea, is an anti-Christian idea. That is to say, our knowledge is definitely the knowledge which starts from God's identification of himself. Now comes sin into the picture. What does it do? Well, we know what sin does. It's an ethical act of rebellion. It's not something that brings you down lower in the scale of being, Well, that's wrong to is Here's the scale of being, and God is up there very high, and we are down here, and being gets very thin down here. And so we're low on the scale of being, there's non-being, God calls that not to get. And so naturally, being so near non-being, the winds of chance... Will Now, why at the beginning, if you're going to be scientific, and if you are going to be open-minded and neutral, then you must certainly think that one hypothesis is as good as another. Now, unfortunately, that underlies the whole traditional method of evidence and apologetics, as it is set forth in Bishop Butler's analogy. And that has sprung from Roman Catholicism, Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas got it from Aristotle. And Aristotle got it finally from Adam. Adam got it from Eve, and Eve got it from the devil. Now, that's as simple as it is, isn't it? Of course it is. That's as simple as it is. There's nothing more to it. But the thing I'm trying to bring out of this, and why I can't return to Mother Church, is this. You have underneath assumed this concept of man, that man is not the one who is what God says he is a created being made in the image of God, with ordinances in his makeup, its constitution, which require him, if he is to be himself and know himself for what he is, and be given able to give intelligent answers to questions about himself and about the world, then he is not that. Well then what is he? Well the only alternative there is is to say he's not under God's That's the simple difference. There are only two positions. There are not 57 varieties. What a wonderful, blessed thing that is. You see, we can't learn uh, all about every detail about all the religions of the world. We can't gather together all the isms, and spiritualism, and this ism, and that ism. And we can't, by study of uh, all kinds of comparative religions. Oh, it's a good thing we should learn something about those things, but it would be a absolutely hopeless thing for us if we have to know all of that. There are leaders coming up all the time, but fortunately you have to know only two positions, and you know the one in relationship and in contrast with the other. Max Müller once said, he who knows this position knows all. If you know the biblical position, as a criterion, then you know all other positions. Uh, that is the basic thing, you know, that underneath all philosophies of life, including all modern philosophies as well as all ancient philosophies, every approach to every methodology of science not based on scripture is based on this idea of human autonomy, which just man means, of course, that man is not under the law, but that he's his own law, his own self-lawgiver, automobile, self-mover nomos, autonomous, self-lawgiver. He has no law above him. Dr. Herman Berry maybe you have no doubt heard of him, his big work on the new particular theoretical book A <laughs> preach, therefore, of his philosophy, Christian philosophy, the philosophy of the law idea. Now, that's a funny name. And what he means is this, that God gives man his creature law and that he should live under that law. God himself is Ex-laves. He's above that law. Not that God is to be nominalistically conceived, as he can call white black and black white, changing around and all of that, but that he's about the law that he is given to the creatures. A father can give his children ordinances certain things and don't do this. you are only five years old. You may not now at this time do this, which I, as a grown-up, may very well do. He is the ordinance. God is the law giver. Well now... You can come down the line of Greek philosophy today, the next commander, and he's in their place for a minute, for ourselves. and the rest of them. And I shall try rapidly to survey some of those reasons, because I think it's extremely useful and helpful for us to know them in the fact that they are all identical, which doesn't mean that their differences are of no importance to us from no point of view, but it does mean to us that we have one medicine which cures all the diseases and that all the diseases of men are one disease, and that is the Declaration of Human Autonomy, well, with it goes also the Declaration of Pure Contingency, or pure chance, as a principle of individuation. That is to say, apply a thing. Here's this apple. Oh, no, excuse me. Now I'm slipping into the old... <laughs> Isn't it horrible that I slip back into the old traditional ways of <laughs> <laughs> Here, let me write the persimmon out. Then I won't forget. <laughs> what makes the persimmon to be a persimmon? What is that poodle's kernel? What is the poodle's kernel? What makes the poodle to be poodle? Now, what makes this man face To be lazy. Well. Are you a junior right? No, he's a junior. Are you a single right? Single man. Are you a southerner? Right. Southerner. What else? That's good. <laughs> Anybody else can say anything about good about gay? <laughs> All right. Now, I can go on. I think he's white, southern, Junior at the Reformed Seminary just that. I can say a whole lot of things. Can I say it all about him? I should be able to say it all about him. Otherwise, I may not know anything about him. Because, don't you see, it all depends on the fact that I must describe him in totality. or he may be totally different because of the influences that I don't know anything about. Don't you see? He may have some secret individual a lot, somewhere. I didn't even ask him about his other line <laughs> in the way of girls and all that sort of stuff. Marvy, it's for me to ask But suppose he came here, he came here, he never let on, you know, never let on. But underneath it all, all this why he worked so hard and why he was so diligent, why he always got A's in Hebrew especially in systematic theology and all that. Because he wanted to be, show his girlfriend what a great man he was going to be and all that, you know. Well, we didn't know that. Now, the point is, on the Christian position, that thing is what it is because God says what it is. Isn't it right? Truth is truth because God says it is true. The right is right because God says it is right. The holy is holy because God says it is holy, and the beautiful is beautiful because God says it is beautiful. Remember Socrates? And uh, Catholic bring this illustrate the point. One Frosty morning, Socrates was meeting Euthyphro. And Euthyphro was a young man who was going to the courthouse early in the morning. What what says Socrates? I'm very you. Uh well, he says, I have important business to do. I've got to charge my father with murder, and I'm taken him to the courthouse. I'm going to on my way to the courthouse. Well, now that is certainly wonderful that I'm meeting him because you know, I'm charged with corrupting the youth of Athens. I don't even know whether they know what justice is and what it is to correct charging me with. And I don't know myself what I whether I know what goodness is. I have searched, I'm 70 now and over, and uh, I don't know what justice is, and so I'm fortunate that I'm meeting you this morning. Surely you must know, if you are on your way to condemn your own father for injustice, then you must know what is justice. Oh, well, do as I do, says. do as I do. Well, that's nice, the sock, but, <laughs> That he says, that's nice. But I would please, be pleased if you would tell me a little more specifically what the definition of justice is. Well, do what the gods do. Oh, that's fine, but will you tell me how many gods there are? Oh, there's only one god. I'm a monotheist. Oh, that's fine. Therefore, do as God does. That's fine, says I. I'm so happy you're no doubt right. But, ah, Abba, would you not kindly tell me what the holy is, the good, regardless? Of what gods or men say about it. I'm quoting, regardless of what God or man says about it. Now, that's the whole point, don't you see? Be good. Here's God. And he sees it. Here's Socrates. Now, Socrates said, Look, I don't need it. It's very interesting if God also looks the same way at this that I do. Maybe we can get together on the subject. And maybe to elect him Commander-in-Chief and all of that who and who I'd like to go directly to see for myself in terms of my conceptual powers my understanding in myself with reference to myself what the good is. Get to know what good is. Now I don't just I don't just that isn't on your TV is it? That's one of these Pennsylvania Dutch ads. you know, these products that are. Get to know what good is. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you see, they get that from Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> you know what the good is. And to get to know what the good is, you mustn't be bothered about asking what God thinks is good. It just happens to be so that he also feels the same way, that he likes the same side of biscuits that you do very well. But that's biographically, psychologically interesting to me. But it's not basically, ethically, morally, spiritually important for Socrates. Well, where did he get that? Well, he got that from Adam. He got it from Eve, and Eve got it from Satan. Namely, that a man who is one in himself mustn't have to act anymore. He doesn't, he's now, he's, as Bonhoeffer would say, come of age. And, We are now come of age, and so we don't have to ask anymore, God, what do you think about that percentage of what will happen? What's your hypothesis? No, it's nice to hear what God has to say about it. But it is not that by which we live and move and have our being. So that means that God, together with us, has been swimming in the absolutely unbounded, shoreless, bottomless ocean of chance. It's the first time God meets a persimmons. It's the first time that he's, he's going to, he's interested in this experiment, what's going to happen to human beings if they eat persimmons off that particular tree. And so he's, God's experimenting with it, don't right, you see? And he says, now I'd like to, God doesn't quite say that, I'd like to have you eat he says the opposite. But nevertheless, God is waiting to see what will happen if man eats of the persimmons. Now, oh God says, you'll surely die, surely die. Now, that was true, actually, of course, because God had ordained it that way, because the fact is what it is, because God has made it that way and said that it is that way, and therefore nothing else but death could come out of the eating of that persimmons for a creature made in the image of God. Now, that is, second point, here's human autonomy, and here's... God had ordained it that way, because the fact is what it is, because God has made it that way and said that it is that way. And therefore, nothing else but death could come out of the eating of that persimmons for a creature made in the image of God. Now, that is, second point, here's human autonomy. And here's the pure contingency, pure tendency. Nobody knows, therefore. Nobody knows. We're now in a position where nobody knows. Now, that's exactly where we are now. And my good friend Howard was writing this Christ and Tiger book. That's the position he takes. That his father and his parents and all the fundamentalists have been always dead wrong in that they thought somebody knew. It's just impossible. Now, that is the, the modern philosophical position to begin with. Nobody knows. And that if you claim to know, you are utterly unbearably conceited and you're utterly unbelievably ignorant of what is actually the state of the case that you would think to know infinity now if we think it's true saying god is infinite eternal and unchanging, and that he is incomprehensible now we believe in the incomprehensibility of god but they have substituted for the incomprehensibility of a god who says i am light and who can say what he is and without reference to anything outside of himself. We have just now seen that they substitute the idea for it an in infinity, a boundless, infinite, unrelated, indeterminate, meaningless void. That's modern existentialism. And that it has inherited from all of pagan philosophy. Now, therefore, that's the second point. Autonomy, sure, irrational, non-rational, indeterminate, chance principle of individuation. What makes the thing to be what it is, is just there. It's there by chance. And gods and men are, all of them, in the same position with respect to this ultimate situation, which is beyond their reach. Intellect, logic, willpower, it's all within this. You. I swim in here, you're a little tiny fish, and you meet a big whale, and go out to the big whale, and you're the light, little tiny bit of a fish, and you meet the whale, and you have a little conversation, you say, good morning, Mr. Whale, you're much bigger than I am, aren't you? Oh, yes, it's just, but I have an infinite ocean to swim in, and I can't reach the borders of it any more than you can. And then you have a very... High can reach the borders of existence. Well, so we are told today that if you're really modest and if you really take time seriously and what it means, then of course you can say, I'm very old. I'm now Let's see, how old was the oldest man that I've ever lived? Oh, you know your Bible, don't you? I'm sixty-nine. Must do so. Very well. Now, that isn't very old, is it? If you go backwards,
1: you And if you go forward, this direction.
0: I once heard a story when I was walking in wooden shoes in Holland about a little bird that came once in a billion years to sharpen its beak on a mountain of grass in Switzerland. And when, that, <laughs> and when that mountain was worn flat to the ground, then the first second of eternity was passed and then they all their faces lit up and then they knew what eternity was. Did they? <laughs> were they any closer to knowing it? Of course they were. <laughs> In other words, you say, you, say that God, you say that God is awfully old? He's way back. He lived from eternity to eternity. Does that mean that God lived much longer backwards? Now, yeah. you see, the assumption of all the aristot- of Platonic arguments for immortality is Socrates works them up, that you participate in God. Immortality is deformity. You participate in the being of God. So it's lifting in the scale of being again. But we'll get back to that. Now, yes. All right, all right. Take break. From scratch. Now, here we have this natural man. He's now free, don't you see? Here's the Queen Mary. He didn't like it. Now, I was actually on the Queen Mary, and I bumped my head against one of those things, you know, because uh, the tourist-class passengers were all confined in a small area, and the first class cabin passengers had all the big rooms, you know, so I bumped my head, and I had a headache for days out of it. But I did not jump off the Queen Mary, <laughs> because I knew it was the presupposition of getting to Europe. <laughs> If I would jump off to Queen Mary, I would be free from all headaches that would come from bumping to Queen Mary. I would knock her away. Don't you see? When I'm free, I am free in the void. In other words, that's the only alternative there is to the biblical position that you are and the world is what God says it is. Now, that's why there are only two positions. There are not these many varieties. There are all kinds of combinations, synthesis, and the Roman Catholics, of course, are the great synthesis makers, synthesis makers. Well, now, here's this man that's free. And uh, you can see it in Sartre for example, in an illustration, the extreme position. Saat, the existentialist, said he's free, but to be free, you must be sure that God doesn't exist. Well, now, then, uh, how does a man know that God does not exist? And... That there is no God as a creator and as a controller, and no Christ who will come as a judge to condemn you for certain things that you have not done or done. Well, how do you know that God? Well, you can't just say, I think God made not very likely, possibly not exist. That's too weak. You've got to have a universal negative, don't you see? That God cannot exist. You're not safe from the Christian. the the claims and the the persecutions, if you will, prosecutions of the Christian religion in the name of God speaking through Christ who says that he controls all and Jesus who said to the Pharisees, if you knew your Old Testament, you would know that they spake of me and I'm the only one that can identify myself and say I am I and make it stick. Well, the only alternative to that is of course to be free in a Now, oh, then you're free. Are you? No. You're not free. Because you're nobody. Now, you're not, you're free, but then you have to have some way of relating. Here are other people that are free. Suppose you and have little moved. chips of ice. Now, here was the old ice cube, old ice blocks, say 100,000 pounds. And some <laughs> imaginary genie took an ice pick, a fairly good-sized one, and picked off some little chips. And then all these little chips of ice are floating around in the water. Now, the ice is made of the same stuff as water, isn't it? It just hasn't thawed out yet. Now, therefore, this individual that is loose from God is always on the direction of thawing out completely. And he's, he's going into non-being. Now, Saad said he has to be so free, and so free from this law giving, God-creating, God-controlling being that we have in Christianity, that he can't even have a nature of his own. But you see, if there were any nature left in him, if there were any laws of nature round above, there must be no order, no laws of nature. I must have no order, no laws of nature. In me, to be really free, I must be nothing, and I must be what I will be in the future. And when I get to the future, I must again say I will be what I will be in the future. So only in the future... Am I going to be free? Now, we'll get to that when we get to modern existentialism. This is the result of choosing the alternative, the only alternative. And in it already is indicative to me the only proper method of defense of the Christian religion and the method of presenting it. You present this position, which is the biblical position, not because you have proved it to somebody who starts on this business basis with methods that he approves of, that's the worst thing you can undertake to do. But it is, first of all, you accept what the Bible says on its say-so. God says this, and Christ says this. Now, that's our starting point. He identifies himself, and he identifies us, he identifies the world, and then after that you can start talking about it. Well, now, let's see how this free man does talk about the world. He can't talk to these other people. He can't find himself. He can't talk to himself. Suppose he could, however, then he finds find somebody else who can't talk to himself and he doesn't know himself. But suppose they did. They would only be able to do it if they were able to do it in terms of a universal law. All science, all philosophy, of every description, non-Christian, appears to a universal, not the universal, that is the law, the providence of God, but a universal that is, as, as Socrates said, above God and man, independent of God and man, and therefore the essence of which you penetrate and from being subject to the ordinances of God and of man. Now, that is the great universal of the law. Now, when, however, you start talking about yourself in relation to the other fellow, in terms of that law, don't you see what happens is this, that you get it taken up into this hall and he gets taken up into this hall and you're both in that hall and you're both swallowed up in that hall. Now Mr. Johnson is here this morning. He talked about being turned right out of existence. Well, do you remember Amos and do you remember Andy? Anybody here old enough to remember? <laughs> well, they are all pretty old, aren't they? Well, here was Amos and here was Andy. <laughs> And they lamented the fact that they couldn't get together of evenings to play cards. And so they were so glad when they heard that LBJ was building a <laughs> turnpike. Or maybe a playbird to beautify the situation. <laughs> so they called it turnpike a building, and it was a building and a building. And the trouble was that they were worried about it, it wasn't wide enough to see Amos' villain swamp and so oh, there they see it get wider they're so happy it gets wider it's getting wider and wider and wider and, wider. and it's just getting awfully wider <laughs> <laughs> it, it's solid concrete you know you've got to have solid concrete what happens to Amos and Andy they are turned piped out of existence as now to the grand, famous German poet expresses it very well when he says Rick so I'm sure you say to be how many Germans are there anywhere? Ah, just The point being this: when the individual is an individual in his absolute freedom and independence of God, then he can't speak. He can't talk to anybody. Nobody can talk to him. Can't even talk to himself because he can't identify for himself. He can't say cocky toe had it That's what Descartes thought he could say. But he couldn't. He couldn't assume about his own cocky toe. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't possibly <laughs> see, say I am. He couldn't make it stick. Nobody can make it stick and say I am. Only God can. Who are you? How do you differ from that other individual say I am? You can't say I am unless you say something special about yourself that differs from everybody else. Otherwise, you're not different. Otherwise, you're one of a species, and you're lost in it. Therefore, as soon as you speak, the individual speaks, he has to do it in terms of the universal. Aristotle said, the lowest species. You can say about Socrates, he's a man. Now, he's snub-nosed. 250 pounds, and Simeon is not no, He's only 150 pounds. And when Socrates meets Simeon, he, of course, knocks him down, because he's heavier. But is, that's accidental. But when you say something intelligible about Socrates, if you say the same thing. Socrates is a man. Simeon is a man. You're not saying anything simius about simius or socrates about Socrates unless you have reduced both of them in terms of one concept. Now, that's the heart and center of all Greek and all English modern philosophy is to say you are speaking. That's why good expression is so well, and it's worth remembering that expression. If the individual speaks, it is no longer the individual that speaks because when the individual speaks, his individuality is absorbed into abstract universality. Now there's a deep problem, the only problem there is, that is, for non-Christian thinking, and it is this that enables us, always. Somebody says to you, I don't like your position, it's too authoritarian. (laughs) Why, you're funny, aren't you? (laughs) And you accept this on a pure authority. I can explain this psychologically and historically and uh, you come from a funny background and you've always read the Sunday School Times and you that, and you were brought up on this and that and that was your teaching and all of that and so you thought this was that and that and that. I can explain all of that because that's the way human history has gone. Everybody at the early state wants absolutes. Every form of religion had a Bible or a God or a deity who gave you absolute information but with the course of events, we have learned to realize that there is no such thing as an absolute position, that all is relative to, to the human mind. Now, that's the great lesson of the great philosopher Immanuel Kant, who in the modern times has made this most abundantly claim to us, that when you talk, you are talking about this world, there would be, I'll get back to this they can that that soon and then you know, the appears is lot perfectly human they said we will try the mind is like a blank and like a camera and the facts write themselves upon this negative and we we'll reproduce this and the rational is that the mind is an active eternal being the facts are all within it I can't nine. not nine neither, neither one of you right <laughs> that is to say What's happening is that the mind is actively <coughs> organizing the raw stuff, which doesn't exist organized from all eternity, but is just being organized now. And so, what knowledge is? with science is? Is this ongoing process of taking the raw stuff of experience, let's say they're just like that. Really, it has no shape. But when the mind comes to it, and it shapes that stuff. And therefore, it, when it knows the facts of that world in itself, then those facts no longer belong to that world of itself. Then they belong to my world, to my world of scientific, of causal relations, of substance and modality and things like that. And therefore, when you are trying to prove the existence of God by the ontological proof or by the proof of teleology, purpose, or by the proof cosmology, you're attempting to jump out of this world, which nobody can do. I was brought up on a farm in Indiana, and my father had a mean trick in him. We had a speckled hen, an old speckled hen, and he put duck eggs under this speckled hen one time. Now just imagine that poor hen. You know, little ducks. It takes chickens three weeks to hatch, ducks four. Now, uh, that proves my agricultural background. Now, uh, here, mind you, was well, this little speckled hen. Now, that is set out here, my solid land, on which she and the chicken and the hen could walk. And then those little ducks went off in the water. And said, cluck, 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 cluck. Come back, come back, come back. And they went off. And they were in the numeral realm. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what Kant called the anabasis, the alogenos. And jump into an other, other category, which is illegitimate, he says. You can't jump. The experience binds you to this. You are time-space bound. How can you talk about a God who is not space-time-bound? Then you're jumping into another religious area of which nobody has ever told us anything, could tell us anything. If he could, we wouldn't be able to understand it. We wouldn't have capacity for understanding. it.